In this series, we're learning how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. If you'd like to grow in your practice of prayer, you can find some basic resources on our website at citizenselmira.ca under the resources heading. Well, good morning again, everybody. It's, uh, it's really great to be with you this morning. Um, it feels uh, like it's been some time uh, since I've had the opportunity to be up here sharing with you. I'm excited um, to be back and to um, speak of, uh, from the word of the Lord this morning. Hopefully the feeling is mutual. Um, uh, Harold, I think uh, I learned this morning, has a little bit too high of a view of me because he saw the crowds coming in and he thought for a moment they were here to hear me and not for all the kids. Um, so thank you, Harold, one of the highest compliments he could have given me. But uh, yeah, I'm a little bit more honest. Um, many of you know that Sharice and I, over the past uh, several months, uh, have had the privilege of serving uh, internationally in a few different contexts. Um, one of the questions that we often get when we return home is, what was the food like? Now, often it strikes me just how blessed we are in Canada to have the variety of international cuisines that we do. Like really in so many ways, the world has brought their kitchen to us, right? You don't have to cross any oceans, you hardly even have to cross the 401 to find pretty much anything. And that, I really enjoy that, I think it's awesome. I love trying foods from different cultures, um, I love trying the different places that we have here locally, um, but of course there's something different about being able to, to actually experience these uh, international cuisines when you're immersed in the culture that they come from. One of the things that um, you tend to notice pretty quickly when you're eating internationally is what is their standard staple? What's their like food that they have at seemingly every meal? Most cultures have one. Typically it's like an inexpensive carbohydrate or something that forms that basic part of the meal, right? No surprises, last summer when I was in the Philippines, it was rice. Literally rice at every meal. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. They said if there was no rice, you were just eating a snack. In Zambia, it's something called inshima, which is sort of like a cornmeal paste. Um, in Uganda, they call the same thing ugali. And then they also have in Uganda something called uh, chapati, which is kind of like a flatbread. Now, most recently, we were in Turkey, where the staple food was bread. And uh, the festival of Ramadan began while we were there, and Sharice had the, the chance to join some Turkish folks who were working with us a few times as they broke their daily fast um, with something called Ramazan Pedesi, which literally just means Ramadan bread. Um, it's this round loaf that has a little bit of a firm crust, but a soft inside. Typically, though, the meals included something like this, which is just kind of your standard flatbread. Um, there was one place that we stopped for lunch um, where I watched them make it, and that's what's pictured here. So uh, there's this oven on the left-hand side, um, and they would have these at like a bunch of kebab places and stuff. It's this pit oven that's built out of clay bricks, and they'd put a fire in the bottom of it, and they'd stoke that fire and get that oven really, really hot, and then they'd just take the dough and they'd slap it against the wall, and those bricks were hot enough that that bread would cook up in like a matter of minutes or less, right? And then it would come out and uh, be this beautiful flatbread there. And you'd, you'd either have it served with hummus or, you know, they would wrap your kebab meat in it, whatever, whatever you were having that day. So these staple foods around the world, like they're not always the most extravagant, right? They're simple, they're inexpensive, um, but they form the essential parts of meals. They form the foundation of a sustaining diet. They provide the lion's share, in some cases, of people's energy intakes 
in some of these contexts. Now, I know it's, it's dangerous starting a sermon talking about food, right? I probably la- lost half of you already, but I can't help it. The word bread is right there in the section of the Lord's Prayer that we're looking at this morning. Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. There's no way to avoid it. We only have the one verse to cover. And if you're thinking, oh, well, good, we only have one verse to cover, we'll get to lunch early, you obviously don't know me very well. <laughs> this morning, uh, we've made it to the halfway point in our study of the Lord's Prayer. Darcy has covered off the first half of the prayer, and now we're pivoting into the second part. Now, as we've gone through this prayer together, we've been approaching it as a template, as a guide, rather than like a specific, rigid set of words that we have to say when we pray. Uh, And I think it's fair to say that that's how the church has viewed it over its history, right? Since the time of Christ, we viewed this as kind of a guide rather than like... um, than like a specific thing we have to pray. It kind of informs uh, the posture that our prayers should take and the kinds of things that we should have on our minds as we pray. It's probably a framework that Jesus used on several different occasions to teach people, right? It likely was not a one-off deal. We know this because it's recorded twice in the New Testament, right? It's recorded uh, in the version we see here in front of us in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's also um, recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Matthew records it as part of a larger sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is going through his teaching. In the middle of it, he talks about prayer, and he gives this, this template. But Luke actually records it on a different occasion where uh, the disciples have asked a direct question of Jesus, and he responds with this as his teaching point. Now, it's totally reasonable to conclude that there's no conflict between these here, right? They are probably accurately recording two different occasions where Jesus used this template, right? Teachers do it all the time. If they travel around, they use the same way of explaining the same concept, right, to different audiences. Uh, Personally, I think it's probably a safe bet to assume that Jesus recited it more than twice. He probably used it in other contexts as well. We just don't have that recorded in any of the Gospels. And I don't know if it's just me having grown up in the church and having repeated it so much, but I kind of think the whole prayer has a little bit of a rhythm to it, right? It's got a flow. It's structured in a way that I I personally find easy to recite and to remember. Now, I know we're not saying it in the original language, but it still kind of has this poetry to it that I think makes it easy to call to mind. And that would, again, that would totally make sense because it's a framework, it's a guide, it's it's sort of like a memory aid that Jesus would have used to have his teaching on prayer remain in the minds of his disciples. Teachers use memory devices all the time, right? I can still remember in grade 11, advanced functions class, Mrs. Bauman teaching us the quadratic equation, and she taught it to us by singing it in this repetitive jingle, and so I will never forget it. Negative b plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4ac all over 2a negative b plus or minus, and so on, you get the point. And it stuck with me right through into university. I'm sitting there doing my university exams, singing to myself this quadratic equation, right? Or maybe you remember Dr. Mrs. Vandertramp in French class, which helps us remember the verbs that we we use with être to conjugate the past tense. And maybe you just shuddered a little bit as I made you recall all of this, right? And you study, you can imagine studying for your exams with these silly mnemonics in your head. And when I say that the Lord's Prayer is memorable like these things, I'm not saying that, you know, 
it's going to help you pass some heavenly exam like Mrs. Vandertramp would help you pass third period French. No, it's a, it's a structure of prayer that's useful because of how deceitful our heart can be and how distractible our mind is. Sometimes when we come to prayer, we are so intimidated or we're so discouraged or tired that we don't even know uh, what words to use or how to even begin to posture ourselves. So this prayer is a great start when you just need to use somebody else's words, and it's a great framework for when you're ready to use your own. Most people break the prayer down into six different petitions, right? The first half is what Darcy covered, the first three. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's petition one. Your kingdom come, petition two. Your will be done, petition three. Right, so those are the first three. Your name be praised, Father. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done, Lord. And all of these are thought of as generally kind of upward-looking and focused on God's glory. They're all directed beyond ourselves. But here in verse 11, there's a bit of a shift, right? The, the pronouns shift from your to us and our, right? We see, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Now, many authors and commentators point out something that I think um, is maybe intuitively obvious if we think about it, that the, the order of these petitions is important. It's significant that the, prayer, the first three petitions that pray for his name, his kingdom, his glory, that they come first. Our temptation in prayer can be to rush past those things and go straight to our needs. N.T. Wright puts it this way in his book about the Lord's Prayer. The danger with the prayer for bread is that we get there too soon. We come to prayer aware of urgent needs or at least wants. It's tempting to race through the Lord's Prayer as far as on earth as it is in heaven so that we can take a deep breath and say, now look here, when it comes to daily bread, there are some things that I simply must have. And then off we go into a shopping list. To do this is, of course, to let greed get in the way of grace. I think we're probably all guilty at some point or another of this error in prayer. Like, I know I am. Our temptation is, go, is to go straight to that prayer for bread with all of our requests for things, physical or not. You know, like, please, God, help me find a place to live. Please, God, tell me if I should take this job. Please, God, let the Leafs win game six. <laughs> he was listening last night, folks. I told Evan I had two sermons prepared this morning, you know, when God answers prayer and when he doesn't. But. Now, I think any parent in the room would tell us that they want their relationship with their kids to go beyond just, Mom, can I have this? Or, Dad, can you do that? And yet, the correction to that error is not to hold back from requests completely. Like, I think equally, parents would be disappointed if their children never came to them for anything. Of course, posture and tone have a lot to do with it. But there can be something profoundly honoring when a child of any age comes to a parent with an honest expression of need. And you parents know that your love for your child is so deep and so strong that you're compelled by a deep sense of loyalty and generosity towards your child to do anything that you can to provide for them for their real needs. And I think it's really important for us to consider that this template that Jesus has given us for prayer, this is his guidance on how we should approach the almighty God, the origin of all things, the one who holds all power in his hands. And this guidance includes a petition for our basic needs. There's something 
deeply profound about the fact that it includes something so basic as a staple food like bread. God wants us to come to him with our needs. Now, to restrict the meaning of this prayer to just be asking for literal bread is almost certainly too narrow of a view. Right? Certainly in our modern context, we would see this word bread as referring to, um, it's symbolic, it's referring to something much broader than that. Right? When we use the word um, breadwinner to refer to someone in a family, we're not saying that they're literally going out and competing for loaves. No, we're just making the comment that um, they are the primary person earning the financial resources to provide for all the basic needs of the family, which includes but is not limited to that $2 loaf of bread from Donuts and Deli. Right? The bread in breadwinner refers to a broader spectrum of needs. And certainly, if we did a word study in the New Testament, we would find the same thing. People are accustomed to using this word bread in this, in this sense to refer to food in general or all of the basic needs for daily sustenance. And then, of course, a few times in his ministry, Jesus actually takes this physical symbol of bread and he gives it a spiritual dimension. There's the symbol um, that we use when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper together. Jesus takes bread and breaks it and said, says, this is my body broken for you. Or in John's gospel, in chapter 6, there's a story after he feeds the 5,000. He crosses the Sea of Galilee. People follow him to the other side. He has ex this exchange with them, and he encourages them to work not only for physical bread, but to the true bread from heaven. And when they ask, Lord, give us this bread always, he replies, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so it's, it's things like this that have long led the church to interpret bread in both the physical and the spiritual sense. And it leads us to the understanding that what is needed for human flourishing is not limited to the physical Right? It's not only things like water, food, and shelter, although it absolutely includes those things. It goes to broader emotional and spiritual needs. Some of the basic human needs include things like security, dignity, connection. And the church for some time has said that this petition for our daily bread is an instruction, an invitation to come to your heavenly Father with trust and dependence for all of those things. The prayer is not limited to physical bread as though all we need in life is fuel for our physical bodies, but it's also not limited to spiritual needs as though the ultimate goal is to just detach ourselves from the earthly experience. No, baked into this petition for bread, baked into the Christian understanding and worldview is, is a both-and view of the world. We need both of these things, physical, emotional, spiritual. At its basic level, what this petition in Matthew 6, 11 does is it gives us the permission to come to the Lord with our needs. Yes, of course, it's best to pray with a mindset that puts the prayer for his glory and his kingdom first. And in a few minutes, we're going to talk about some of the things that we need to keep in mind as we pray for our needs, the kind of posture that we have towards the Lord in prayer. But before, before we get there, I want us to remember this. This part of the Lord's Prayer is an invitation from Jesus to come to your Father and ask him for all that you need, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Your Father earnestly desires to hear about these things. He wants to know your stressors. He wants to know what concerns you. He wants you to trust him with all of that.
because he loves you dearly. Cast all of your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In your prayers, do not neglect to ask your Father for what you need. You are not a burden to him. He delights in you, and he desires to provide for you. And I think for some of us, I could end the message there. That's the reminder that we need to hear this morning, that your heavenly Father actually cares for you, and he wants you to come to him. And with all of this talk about food and bread and such, perhaps a few of you are ready to go have your prayers answered at Sip and Bite. And we could do that, but you know how those Sunday school teachers go on forever, so I'm going to keep going for a little bit longer. This morning, I want to make a few observations about the prayer that inform our posture when we come to the Lord asking for these things. I want to look at what we can glean from this, this petition, and in particular, three words in this petition. Okay? I want to focus on the words um, give, us, and daily. First, the word give points to a provider. Second, the word us it tells us that this prayer is plural. And third, daily shows us that the prayer is for the present. Give points to a provider. Us says the prayer is plural. Daily shows us that the prayer is for the present. Speaking of memory tools, you've got to use alliteration, right? So each of these three petitions in the second half of the prayer, um, of the Lord's Prayer, they're, they're imperatives, right? They're quite direct. Give, forgive, lead. We see that, right? Give, forgive, lead. They're, they're the same sentence structure as giving a command, right? Wash the dishes, clean your room, shoot, Matthews, shoot. So some might be tempted to think that this sounds a little bit like a kid saying, you know, give me this, give me that. Give me, give me, give me. But when we actually look at the tone of the Lord's Prayer, like I don't think any of us would honestly say that, right? This prayer doesn't sound at all like a child begging for a kinder surprise, no, quite the opposite. It might be a direct request, but it's actually more like a deep expression of dependence. The request for God to give is because we recognize him as the giver. He is not one of many suppliers that we are shopping around at, hedging our bets at. No, we come to him because we know that he is the source of all we need. And in this tone, the imperative of give, it actually becomes a profession of faith. Right? It's an act of worship. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are agreeing with James, recognizing that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You know, when we have to ask someone else for something, um, that can take a lot of humility. Right? We're acknowledging a gap in our own resources and then coming to them for help. For example, when you're learning how to do something, you have to be humble enough to admit that you don't know what you're doing and you have to rely on someone to teach you and fill the gap. And rightly done, that can actually be something that is, you know, 
showing honor and respect to that person you're asking for help. Over the past few years, as we've done a bunch of work on our house, um, there have been plenty of times where I've had to humble myself and go to my dad and ask for advice and help. Now, hopefully I haven't communicated to him, you can ask him, he's sitting here this morning, hopefully I haven't communicated an expectation or an entitlement, you know, that he is to come to my house and do all this free work for me. No, hopefully I've communicated um, that I'm asking him for help because I honor him and I respect him, and in humility I'm acknowledging to him and saying, like, I need you. You're better at this than I am. Would you be willing to come and show me how to do this? Hopefully, that spirit of dependence has communicated that I trust and I honor my Father. And I think there's a parallel there with our relationship with the Lord. When we say, Father, give us bread, we're saying to him, we need you. We are dependent on you, and we trust you to be our provider. We're saying, as Peter did in John 6, like, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The second word that I want to focus on is that word, us. The word, us, in this petition reminds us that this prayer for bread is plural. Not, in, not plural in the sense that we're asking for multiple breads, right? But plural in the sense that we are not always meant to pray alone. Or when we do, we don't always pray with only ourselves in mind. We certainly see in Jesus' life and ministry that at times prayer is meant to be done in solitude, right? He takes himself away to a private place to pray. But we also see that prayer and our Christian faith in general is something that's meant to be practiced together with one another. Praying with the word us helps us to see beyond ourselves. It helps us to see beyond the borders of our property to the neighbor beside us who needs bread, whether physical or spiritual. Or it might help us see beyond the border of our own town to those who are struggling in our own province and country. Or maybe beyond that, into the wider world, into places where daily bread doesn't seem like a guarantee for plenty of folks. Like I said earlier, the Lord has taken Sharice uh, and I to a few places over the past year where that reality of bread not being a guarantee, that, that feels a little more poignant. I've been in countries where people were and are ripped from their homes because of conflict or natural disaster, where this prayer for bread seems to take on a little bit more urgency. As you can imagine, or I'm sure you've experienced yourself, I have found at times that in those contexts it can be a little bit overwhelming when you're presented with so many needs and then you step back and you just reflect on the injustices of the world that have created those needs. It can be a really dissonant experience to think about praying for provision when from an earthly perspective you know that you have plenty of bread. But there are others who did nothing wrong but pray desperately for it every day and they wonder trying to address the injustices of the world is way beyond the scope of what I'm going to share this morning. But one thing I will say is this, that I think praying the Lord's Prayer honestly and earnestly with every hour and us in there is a pretty good place to start. Because praying with the word us pushes us to think beyond ourselves and our own needs. It reminds us that we are not alone in this life, that we walk with companions on the journey beside us, and sometimes we are called to be that companion for others. It teaches us to be mindful that others may be experiencing the same needs we are, or they're experiencing needs that are far beyond our imagination. 
It pushes us to advocate for the cause of others and maybe even consider how we might be the answer to someone else's prayers. And personally, this is actually the point um, where the petition for our daily bread, to me, seems so connected with the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Because when I start to reflect on the immensity of the emotional and physical needs that are in the world, even in our own backyard sometimes, my heart says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let your kingdom come. Show this world what it can be like when we let you be in charge. Destroy injustice, remove hunger, eradicate disease. When we pray the us in the Lord's Prayer, we stand with those who are suffering today as we look forward to a future when all of these things will be dealt with. We don't know what's between here and there, but we know that Christ comes out victorious on the other side. And in the meantime, together, we pray for our daily bread, for the Heavenly Father to sustain us. And that word daily, that's the last one I want to mention this morning. The word daily in this prayer reminds us of a day-by-day decision, and that he encourages us to keep our minds focused just on the steps right in front of us. We know where we are now. We know that his kingdom is coming in fullness one day. He doesn't want us to get too worked up about the things in between. This is really in keeping with other teachings from Jesus. Like later on in this sermon uh, that we're in the middle of, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Now, in no way do I think that this means that we don't, we don't plan for the long term. We don't think about the long term. We don't make wise and prudent decisions in our lives. I know that none of us here would advocate for that. In Luke, um, when, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, um, or rather speaking to people who want to become his disciples, he encourages them to count the cost, right? To plan as a builder would when they are going to embark on building a tower, or as a king would before they go out to battle. And yet scripture is clear that the posture of our Christian faith is meant to be a steady daily trust. Our attitude is to be one that says, give me what I need for today, and that's enough. The details of the future, they're a little bit hazy. I've got some ideas and some plans, but I don't see it all clearly. I know you do, and so I trust you. Now, almost certainly in this idea of daily bread, there's an Old Testament connection. Back to Exodus chapter 16, when the nation of Israel is wandering about in the wilderness, and they complain to Moses about not having enough food. Long story short, God does what God does, and he provides miraculously, food for them to eat, quail in the evening and manna in the morning. And each day there would be this flake-like thing, like frost on the ground, Scripture says, and they would go out, they'd collect it, and that'd be their bread for the day. But God commanded them as they gather it to only gather enough for that day. Of course, some didn't listen, and they tried to gather more, enough for maybe multiple days. And they tried to save it until the next morning, but it spoiled. God was asking Israel to trust him in that moment for daily provision. Not for the the day after, the day after that or the next week, but for daily provision. To have the humility of faith to recognize that their daily sustenance was a gift from God. He was also teaching them a spirit of contentment. Manna and quail were probably not terribly extravagant foods, but they were enough. 
And in a similar way, we are instructed to pray for our daily bread, to trust the Lord for provision, and to learn to be content with what he has given. Now, Scripture doesn't advocate for aestheticism, like an extreme self-denial as a way of life, but there are encouragements towards this kind of humility and simplicity and contentment. And there are warnings against the dangers of wealth that deserve our attention. For me, there's a prayer from Proverbs that summarizes it well. The words that I'm going to read are going to be slightly different than what's on the screen. I'm going to read it from the NASB. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. It is good and right for us to hear the words in 1 Timothy 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. It's also good and right for us to ask the Lord for provision. To ask him to supply all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. As we close this morning, we've been reminded that in prayer, we are invited to come to God as the provider and to worship him as the provider of all our needs. We're reminded that this prayer In this prayer, there's an invitation for all of us, together with one another, to come to him and have the boldness to ask this almighty God to provide for our earthly needs, however trivial or great they may seem. And we've heard the call to lay aside our anxiety about the future and trust him to give us enough for each day as it comes. We know that things are not yet as they ought to be here on earth. But we can pray, give us this day our daily bread in faith, knowing that one day his kingdom will come in fullness. We can do that trusting because the bread of life was broken for us, we will one day have a seat at the table in heaven, joining in what the Apostle John calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I guarantee at that table, they will serve more than bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you so much for your provision for us. We thank you that you are our Father, and we ask that your name would be praised in all the earth. We know that things today are not as they should be, and we know that you have made a way for those things to be made right, and we long for that day, and we ask your kingdom come. Your will be done. We want to know. We want to know what it can be like when you're running the show. So, Lord, in our hearts, may you be king. In our lives, may may you reign. And as we live here on earth, Father, we pray that you would provide us all our needs. That you would forgive us for of our sins. And that you would lead us through this walk, Lord. And when, it, when it's not clear what's ahead, when it's not clear what's in between now and, and then, I pray that you would just give us the, the faith to trust you day by day. That we would do the things we need to do and make wise and prudent decisions. But ultimately, we would recognize that even if the refrigerator is full, even if our retirement account looks good, 
that you are providing day by day and that those things could change. Those things are fickle. They could change on a moment's notice, but you will never change. And so, Lord, we trust you, we honor you, we glorify you. In the precious, perfect, and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.